Warning, this episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniak's. On today's episode, we have a good friend of mine, Tyler Hayes. Tyler and I are members of the same writing community and share a table of contents in the excellent anthology Skies of Wonder, Skies of Danger, which is 13 stories of airships, pirates, and wizards. It came out last year. Tyler Hayes, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Hillary. Absolutely. It's so exciting to have a table of contents mate on the show now. It's so exciting to have a table of contents, mate. Yeah. Uh, For real. I'll just throw that out. Yeah, ones that I actually have met and hugged in meat space. Yep. Uh, we actually had a table of contents, mate, of yours on the show a couple months ago. R.K. Duncan, who was in No Shit There I Was. Oh, oh R.K., that's fantastic. R.K.'s yeah. story was really good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, R.K. made it on here. That's awesome. Yeah, he's super, he's quality. Uh, I grew up with him, so I was like... Gotta have him on the podcast. It's amazing how expansive and yet how small this industry actually is when you get right down to For it. For reals. So, Tyler and I have known each other for an indeterminate amount of time. Time is fake. That is something that is known. It is known. And Tyler was actually one of the first people I thought of when I started planning out this podcast as one of the guests I really wanted to have, and that's... Something we'll get into a little bit after your reading, but sure. let's get into that reading. You are going to be reading Fairyland, is that correct? That is correct. The story that I pulled out of my trunk for this is Fairyland, uh, F-E-R-R-Y, because of course I love wordplay jokes that only work in print. Absolutely. I'll be reading an excerpt, because I timed the story and it comes in at more than we ideally want for the reading. Perfect. And also there are parts of it I just don't want to ever see the light of day. But we'll get into that when we're done. So a little bit of, we're starting on the sixth page of a 24-page story, uh, Microsoft Word page numbers. So just a little bit of background. Your main character in this story is a little boy of an unspecified age named Ryan who lives in a coastal city, also unspecified, though it's really clearly San Francisco. Right who uh, the major sort of departure from our reality has been that there is an island somewhere in the bay called Fairyland, which you can get to via a boat that leaves the San Francisco Ferry Terminal. As we meet Ryan at the beginning of this excerpt, he and his father were out for a day together. He really wanted to go see Fairyland. His father insisted that it was too dangerous. Ryan threw a tantrum. His father did not handle it well. And it ended with his father getting overloaded and striking Ryan, which led to Ryan deciding to run away and go to Fairyland. So we meet him as he is getting off of the bus, having evaded his father and walking up to the ferry terminal. Perfect. The ferry building was dim. Its lights lowered to a yellow-green haze now that the day had mostly passed. Shivering people with huge signs howled outside it, offering handouts and clipboards to passers-by. Hell, some of them kept saying. Curse, said some others. And warning after warning, some more coherent than others, that no one take the fairy's gifts. The inside of the building was crowded yet empty, its population all bunched up into knots. There were the crying husbands and sobbing mothers, trading photos and asking final questions as they eyed the doors to the dock. There were the lovers, their excitement souring to fear. 
And there were the others, the lost and the confused and the elated, giving each other knowing looks as they stood in line to give payment. And before them, at the head of the mangled line, the man in the driftwood suit. The ticket taker. He was huge, wild-eyed, skin like scorched paper and great horny hands. He looked at everyone like they were either entertainment or food, doffing his shredded bowler hat to each one and growling the same dense question. Evening, he kept saying in a voice like a well-fed lion. Come to catch a fairy. Then Ryan was at the head of the line, and the question was coming at him. He hesitated, almost looked back, but... Yes. Lovely. The ticket-taker steepled his fingers, grinned with a mouthful of ivory. Ready to pay? Ryan nodded again. Lovely, the ticket-taker repeated. He leaned forward, a green shadow under the dim lights, and tucked two fingers behind Ryan's ear. Something in Ryan convulsed. Nausea railed through his stomach. Then came the tug and the shiver and the long, cold burn. And when Ryan's eyes could unscrew, he saw the ticket-taker through the tears, adjusting his coat and smiling that dead shark smile. Ryan did not know what was missing. Leaves in just a minute, the taker said, and looked to the next customer. Ryan marched across the pier toward the moldering tugboat, nose writhing at the smell of dust and algae. Men in wooden fish masks swept about the deck, immaculate white gloves pushing brooms and securing knots. No noise rose from their footsteps. One of them stared at Ryan, glass eyes fixed on the small boy with the paling red face. They shoved off as soon as Ryan touched the deck, the gangplank rotting to splinters behind him. Warm lights poured out from the tugboat's cabin, along with the distant murmur of a party, half swallowed by the whoosh of the sea. The men with the fish masks were gone. The only person on deck was an emaciated man with coarse, dark features, more interested in his whispering than in Ryan. Ryan listened for a few curious seconds and decided to sit in his own corner. His jacket was soaked with spray within minutes. The shivering didn't take long after that. The party's music ended, started back again on the same fractured chord where it had begun. Then, just off port, a hoarse bark. The sound came again, was answered from starboard, then aft. And then a chorus started up around him, splashes sounding in the water as bronze-skinned sea lions dove and played in the tugboat's wake. Ryan leaned on the boat's edge, grinning at the retinue of animals flanking the boat, his eyes the bright eyes of a boy who hadn't yet learned fear. And when he turned around, he saw the lights. They were brighter here, unburdened by fog. Four spotlights the size of small cars, beams lunging through the night sky. They stood atop an archway of chrome and driftwood, their lances of yellow a sunny contrast to the red neon letters that spelled welcome high up in the sky. And behind the lights rising out of the island were the tents and towers of Fairyland. The boat stopped, the sea lions gambled back onto the rocks, and Ryan, shivering for more than one reason, decamped onto the new gangplank that had just thumped into place. The men in the fish masks crouched at the end of the dock, passing around a fluted brass thing that gushed orange-black smoke. For a moment, Ryan just stood back from them, staring past them at the play and dazzle of the island, his sinuses full of vertigo. No, he said to himself, and kept on. Two men stood abreast of the front gate, their features drowned out by the lights, save for the sway of their long coats and the diamond flares of their glasses. They cocked their heads in the same direction, staring as Ryan approached. There was a wet little slap from the left one, a movement of his hand to his throat. Oh my, 
Ryan tried to look into the left-hand man's face. Nothing moved in the blackness there. What? The slap repeated itself as the right one swayed toward his partner. You? He tugged at the sleeves of his coat. You're so very angry. Ryan swung his gaze toward the right-hand one, balled his fists. Fairies don't get angry? Left hand clucked, sharing a look with his partner. That's not it, he said with a tang of amusement. That's really not it, but I wonder, you know, what could make you so angry that you would risk getting... stuck? He raised his arm, extended his hand toward Ryan. The world bucked and blurred, Ryan's whole body spiking into a confused fever. Left hand dropped his arm, and the sensation was just a hot and distant memory. Right hand uttered the first half of a chuckle that was finished by left hand. Now, said right hand. That's better, said left hand, once more smacking his lips. Very sad, right cooed, his hand tapping at his cheek. A father hitting his beloved son. You must feel betrayed. Ryan looked down at his trembling hands. He hit me. The two men shared another look, shrugged. If you wish to stay with us... Right hand began. Ryan looked up at him, tracked over to left hand when he heard the wet slap again. We always welcome newcomers. Just say the word. Or, slap, just accept the gift. As it were. As it were. Slap. I don't know yet, Ryan said to the ground. Very well, said left hand. Welcome. Still. Right hand gestured toward the tents. Where would you like to go? Ryan smirked, triumphal, the way his father did, back before his eyes had gotten so baggy. Send me to the food. Right hand and left hand pointed the way in tandem, fingers aimed deep into the filthy party color of the island. Just go that way, said right, all the way to the back. You can't miss it, said left hand. Ryan walked past them with his chest puffed out, straight into the crowds and stalls and stink of fairyland. People walked around him, almost into him, meandering their own separate ways, all of them trying not to meet each other's gazes. Dice clacked to Ryan's left, and a pavilion hung with dried beetles. A sweaty man with wild black hair pawed at the long green table, sputtering excuses as two hairless men dragged him away, binding his eyes with tape as they went. To the right, three women danced without sound, their bodies scandalously naked, their faces focused on something distant and upsetting. A crowd of little men with luminous green eyes traded little bone chits as they watched the dancers, chattering the way Dad used to chatter on poker night. To move forward, he had to walk past a great tent that had once been red and yellow, under which the lion's share of the crowd had gathered. Inside, three muscle-bound women each tried to lift identical golden rocks, lumpy things as big as any of them. One got hers off the ground, to the oohs and ahs of the people-shaped things sitting in the stands. The other two dropped theirs in exhaustion, and the things in the stands slowly poured down onto the floor of the tent, encroaching on the two panting, apologizing figures. Ryan closed his eyes and ears to the great screech that went up from the tent, and dashed on to a long-countered stall hung with a vast army of dolls, with every skin color and hairstyle Ryan had ever seen, and many more he hadn't. The customer there was a boy Ryan's age who stood, weeping and wincing, as the spindly man behind the counter pared off his fingernails with a stubby knife and stuffed them into the doll on the counter. It looked very much like the boy. Another stall full of colored glass bottles. 
Another stall offering guns painted with strange symbols. Another stall where people just stood in morose silence, their faces as ashen and tired as moms. And all around them, people, crushing in, fanning out, stepping around without any attention to Ryan. Except the merchants themselves, who kept offering everything within arm's reach to everyone who would listen. Most of them gave Ryan the most attention of all. The looks in their eyes were the same looks Mom got after her and Dad had messed around with the bottles and tubes. Ryan stopped at a crossroads in the midst of the hubbub, dodging around passers-by as he looked left and right and straight ahead. Under the pavilion to the right, a filthy man with a face full of pimples showed two teen girls how to rub a dark flower on their skin. Ryan heard crackling branches as they rubbed, saw an older woman stop to look at them in horror. The stall to Ryan's left was vacant, its lanterns unlit. There was a sign on the counter that he might be able to read if he got closer, but when he took a step closer he heard the great hungry breathing from inside the shadows and decided Dad might be right about some of Fairyland. Straight ahead, though, was just more path, more lights, more people running about. There were no signposts, no posters, no nothing telling Ryan where to go. Left hand and right hand were wrong, Ryan realized, as a wet squeak built in his throat. He could miss it. Kid? Ryan turned, tried to see the speaker through the crowd of legs. Kid! Brown-haired kid! A man darted toward him, broad-shouldered and scruffy, wearing a t-shirt with the design long since flaked off. He ran with his hands reaching toward Ryan, part shocked and part excited. Hi there, the man said. Hi? It's okay, the man confided in the high whisper of adults talking to children. (laughs) I'm a knight. The words squeaked a little too much to be believable. What? Yes, yes, the man's breath was rapid. I'm here to guide you. You have somewhere to go, right? He pawed at Ryan's wrist as he said it. Ryan pulled back, shaking his head. Oh, come on, the man grabbed again. I I can help you. Where are you going? I can get you there. The man's words were ragged and hungry. The clawing was back in Ryan's stomach. I want food, he declared. The man goggled. Food? Here? Here, Ryan answered. Here specifically. But if you... The man stopped, waved it off. Doesn't matter. It's at the banquet tables. This way. He pointed down the right-hand path. Now, come on. From out of the crowd came a wild, brilliant hooting, and the man's eyes widened to saucers. Oh, no, he ushered Ryan forward. Come on, kid, come on, we have to... A child lunged out from between a woman's legs, his arms guiding something long and fire-sharp. Cloth ripped, and the man in the t-shirt let out a gargled yell as he grabbed at the spear biting into his leg. Kid, he said, and caught another one in the stomach. Ryan stared at the two spearmen, a boy half his age and a girl much younger, not even a full head of hair. Another boy came out of the crowd, whooping and wailing, his spear gouging at the man's other leg. Their victim went down to his knees, his face glistening with sweat. The man looked up at Ryan, begged with his eyes, and then two more children came forward, both with knives. Their attacks were quicker, but less clean. At least I found one this time, he objected, before a brick made a mess of his head. A teenaged boy crouched next to the man, studying the brick he had thrown. He had a cruel mouth, ice chips for eyes. The man tried to drool another word, and the teenaged boy brought the brick down again. Ryan windmilled back from the wet, heavy sound, eliciting a smirk from the older boy. He'll get back up, he said, fake sympathy rounding off his words. It's all a part of his promise. 
He smacked the brick against his other hand, leaving his palms smeared with red, and regarded Ryan for a more studious moment. He scoffed at what he saw. Thanks for slowing him down. Ryan swallowed the lump in his throat and dashed off in the direction the dead man had waved. The chorus of cheers and the horrible coughing only made him go faster. He ran past a man in a great stone chair, head wrapped in shiny silver wire, bellowing as a group of frightened children taunted him in his blindness. He ran past a fortune teller with no legs, dealing cards onto a blanket made of hair. Jars of bile, wheezing chickens. Ryan ran with his nose in the air, ignoring the outstretched arms of the cellars, sniffing for a new smell beyond the dung and spice. Ryan ran with the ragged gasps of the pursued, working so hard he ran past the picnic tables on his first pass. There were six of them under a yellow pavilion gone gray with rain and bird droppings. The tables, though, remained bright and inviting, along with the gold-tinted stand just beyond them and its stark red-lettered sign, Fine Dining. Ryan swallowed his fear and approached. Calligraphied menus stood tall on either side of the counter, next to a solid foot of multicolored squeeze bottles. A canister of mint sat next to the ordering window, red and white spirals in tight, crinkled plastic. Behind the counter stood a man with cloud-white hair, watching two fat men and an even fatter woman jockey for position before a blackened griddle. Ryan grinned, sniffed the air. Cake batter and barbecue sauce. Hungry? Ryan focused. The skinny man was looking Ryan's way, running a thumb along the straps of his apron. He was bleach-clean and big-nosed, his eyes two different shades of brown and his smile never faltering. Ryan licked his lips. Kind of. The skinny man gestured toward the griddle, sending one of the cooks loping out of view. Steam gushed up from some hidden place. What are you in the mood for? Ryan considered. The menus were in a language he didn't understand, but he could identify a few of the sauces, could smell meat going brown and spicy out of his view. Saliva prowled at the back of his tongue. What do you have? Ooh. The proprietor tapped his nose with a too long nail. We can make anything you want. Kitchen is fully stocked. Camel burger. Done, the griddle hissed. Ryan stepped backward, aghast. I don't actually want that. The proprietor shrugged, gestured behind him. The hissing stopped with a put-upon grunt. Ryan looked past him at the accordion backs of the chefs. What are they cooking right now? Wishes. What's yours? Ryan looked at his feet, looked back up at the proprietor. They say if you eat fairy food, you're stuck in fairyland. They say lots of things. The proprietor shrugged, studied the empty tables. Gets busy around this time of night, he hinted. The kitchen smelled of mustard, then of barbecue sauce, then of cool, fresh Caesar salad. Ryan closed his eyes, and he made an order with his heart. Mashed potatoes, tuna, and peas, he said. Fry it a little after you cook it. Metal slapped metal. Spatulas rang out. Cans popped with the sharp snap of a well-tuned opener. Ryan turned, stared out at the corridor of tents and signage, watching people gamble and play and explore. Plastic scraped against the counter behind Ryan's head. He turned to see a beige takeout container, heaped with buttery yellow hills that barely hid the green and pink inside. The proprietor grinned and handed Ryan a fork. Bon appetit. And I will stop there. Whew. That is some atmosphere going on. Thank you. That, uh, well, we'll get into my feelings on that in a little bit. (laughs) 
So, you've mentioned already that parts of this you don't want to see the light of day again. Um, yes. Everything gets trunked for a reason, and it sounds like there are a number here. Yes, absolutely. Do you want me to just dive in? Sure. Okay. So, it's a couple of things, but it all boils down to... This story is from several years ago, uh, mid-aughts. I can't remember exactly the year I actually first wrote it, because I kept coming back to it and editing it, so of course my files all say, like, 2016, but I know that's wrong. Yeah, who knows? Time is fake. Yeah, exactly. So, I can't tell you exactly when, but after I wrote that and before The Imaginary Corpse happened, I had this massive breakthrough with my writing style. Mm Mm-hmm. And some of that was that I got a bunch of health stuff under control. Some of that was that I finally started taking medication for the various things wrong with my brain meat. (laughs) But it boils down to I had this big breakthrough and Fairyland happened. I wrote it before that breakthrough. It was probably my favorite thing I wrote before the breakthrough. And when I came back to it after having written some other things, thinking I'd poke at it for... I think it was an anthology call that I went, oh, this might fit. And, you know, I pulled it out and I I dusted it off and I poked at it and I went, oh, I can't fix this. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, the things that were wrong were so fundamental that I, I just realized that it was not like I could spend that time writing a different story that used a couple of things I thought were great Mm -hmm. rather than try to polish this piece of garbage into being something publishable it like so among the things that i don't want to see the light of day are the story was originally just really pretty mean-spirited and cynical Mm -hmm. like it was very hans christian anderson like bad things happen to people for no reason everyone's terrible and then you die right which is not your brand No, very much not. And Fairyland, that's actually part of the breakthrough that I had, was I went through this thing where I thought that was what I had to do. Mm -hmm. Not as in literally I thought there was this external rule put upon me that I must be dark and cynical or I am not serious. But rather that I had this idea that that's what good writing sounded like. Mm -hmm. And I blame a lot of that on my younger love of Kafka. (laughs) But also, frankly, a lot of the big urban fantasy at the time was of that style of every, everyone's an asshole, no one is happy, and at the end someone has to die, probably someone queer or brown. Right. Or somebody who the main character cared about to give them man pain for the sequel. Absolutely. Though, of course, uh, the tragedy is in that the main character, a white man, is upset about their death. Not that a character with needs and wants of their own is no longer with us. Right. So yeah, it was just this thing where I looked back and I went, this is this weird bridge story where there are a couple of things I love and I hope I can pull them out and use them for something else later. Mm -hmm. And just the story itself is not only not my brand, it is not something I'm interested in telling Mm -hmm. anymore. I would rather write anything I'm writing now than, than try to fix Fairyland. Yeah, that is... I haven't hit anything like that where I feel like my brand has changed but I definitely feel that like there are stories that I wrote that I was very proud of and that now I look at and I say you know I can see what I was doing with this and I cannot fix any part of this I can just take the parts I like and hopefully 
put them into something better in the future. Absolutely. I'll get into Alex Haste and the theory of compost a little bit later, but that's how I look at Fairyland at this point. Fairyland is compost. I am excited for, for your theory of compost as somebody who used to work in waste management. So uh, I will get into that when we talk about my thoughts on trunking. Yes. I have that in my fancy notes that I overwrote because I overwrite notes. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it's just, it's weird even reading through it now mm -hmm. um, as I was practicing for this podcast and just now while I was reading it into the microphone, I was sitting here thinking I would not have made that choice now, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it was all kinds of things. It was little word choice decisions. It was macro decisions like i probably would not have had quite so many women in exploitative positions right and it wasn't bad i have seen much worse but even just owning what's there i go i think i needed to re-examine some of what i was saying when i wrote this yeah 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 that is uh the yeah. the one time i wrote a novel i love pieces of it there are pieces of it i absolutely want to take and turn into another novel or something else but there were so many parts of it that i was not like i hadn't been a part of the conversations that started happening in 2011 2012 2013 about yeah you know the sorts of plots that white men write yeah yeah i there are certain topics I, I i ask myself certain questions about at this point where i go Do, does this need to be here mm -hmm. can this be done to someone else right <laughs> you know like like that's that, i think that says a lot about what plots we're talking about when i say can this be done to a white man yeah maybe <laughs> can, if, if there yeah. has to be this particular part of suffering that that suffering is intrinsic to the story and cannot right. be avoided can it happen to a white cishet dude yes exactly or if it is happening to someone more marginalized is that the case because there are so many marginalized characters people of non-cis white hat dude identities yeah that you that just odds say something bad will happen to one of them at some point right as opposed to, I have my one LGBT plus character, and they die partway through the story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's. Uh, I really. I've been. There was a, a really great panel that I went to at uh, the San Jose WorldCon last year mm -hmm. about disabled characters in fiction called okay. "Stop Killing Us." Yes, I I wanted to go to that. It conflicted with something, and I can't tell you what. That's what happens at cons. Especially at world cons. Yeah. But the panelists got into that sort of thing of... Um, oh, Elsa from Fireside was talking about mm -hmm. the book that she was working on where, if I'm remembering correctly, she was saying that all of the protagonists are blind. And she got to a point where she realized that one of them had to die. And that right. there was, you know, there was pain in that, but that there was also, you know, it wasn't the one blind character dying because they're making a heroic sacrifice that makes up for their disability or something. It was, you know, right. all of these characters are meaningful and this death is meaningful 
not because of some identity, but because of the character is meaningful. Absolutely. And uh, that, that kind of thing, God, now... First of all, let me say I am shocked to hear that this is Elsa, that this is coming from Elsa. Shocked, (laughs) I say. Second of all, that book sounds fantastic, and that's exactly the kind of thing I mean. Though, that's a slightly different thing because Elsa is writing, that's an own voices story for Elsa. And I think, you know, that's something I've talked to with about actually someone I think you mentioned you've had on this podcast before, though I will not drop the name. (laughs) And I were talking about this, and they, they very gently nudged me when I was talking about, you know, well, it's okay... If you kill a more a, a, a non cis hat white dude character, because there are so many of them that that odds say that that's going to happen, mm-hmm. and their response was, "Okay, yes, but when cis hat white authors do that, it is still tiresome, even when there are other marginalized characters to carry on the not being a cis hat white dude torch." Right. You know, even if they are not tokenized, the mere fact that violence is always aimed at not men, not white people, not cisgender people, etc. Yeah. Is is tiresome in and of itself. So Yeah, for sure. And there's a little bit of that at the end of Fairyland, actually, uh, in that the main character's mom gets some blowback from his behavior. And now that I think I think about that now and I go, Wow, I was a jerk when I wrote this. I really was not thinking about this. Yeah. Well, and it's not um as, as somebody who can now look back on that and reflect, like... Oh, yeah. And I, I think it's important for listeners, for authors, to understand that you are not a bad person for making an inconsiderate choice. Oh, yeah, you, absolutely. Whether or not you even consider that choice later, you're not a bad person, yeah. but it does help to be able to look back and say, you know, ooh... You know, I see what I did, and I can see that this is problematic, and I can own that. And that's sort of where I'm at. I I hope I want to piggyback on that and say I'm not dogpiling and saying every man, including me, who's ever done this is irredeemable garbage. Yeah. But, you know, more, it is something that it is good to go back and reflect on, and also, inevitably, everyone does something cringeworthy at some point. You know, they talk about that in writing the other, uh, both the book and the courses, that in the course of trying to be representative and trying to overturn these tired tropes, mm-hmm. you will make mistakes, you will still do something problematic, and the key is to be out there making those mistakes, owning those mistakes, and doing what you can to correct them, whether literally going back and fixing it, if it's a work that you can do that with, or just saying, okay, going forward, I will not make that mistake again. I will make a different mistake next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. And that, that that takes so much integrity, and I'm so impressed with people when I see that happen. Absolutely. Especially when it's, and I, I feel like I'm seeing this more often now, and it's great, uh, when it's unequivocal. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like one of the ways I've seen that that conversation advance over the years has been when when it first happened, when I was first engaged in that conversation of I am actively attempting to be a better person and examine my biases as an artist, there was a lot more couching. Yeah. And a lot more, um, a lot more ally cookies. Yeah. Getting thrown around and the language, that fishing language of, you know, very publicly saying, you're right, I accidentally perpetuated a racist trope with this story and I will never do that again and you know all all of your followers pile on in the thread and go it's okay you're great thank you for acknowledging it and then you're marginally better right the next time 
I feel like now it is much fa- it, the time to actual heartfelt apology is much faster. Yeah, and I don't know what all to attribute that to. I also know that this is a pool that I probably should not wade into. <laughs> well, we'll um, leave it as a yeah, exactly. But but yeah, but I like seeing that shift. I like seeing many more many more people that I see them do that, and I immediately know I feel like I can trust them, even though they made this terrible mistake. The way that they are taking ownership tells me this is a good person making a mistake, mm-hmm. as opposed to a certain apology that went around the internet recently (laughs) that everyone is going yeah i don't know bro (laughs) Uh, listeners we are recording this in april of 2019 but rest assured by the time this airs in august of 2019 that vague subtweeting statement that tyler just made will certainly be applicable to another person and here's where we insert the sad trombone sound. Wah, wah, wah. Thank you for handling that. My foley on my end is pretty sure. <laughs> All right, so what do you want to talk about now that we've almost wandered into dangerous waters? Well, now that we've wandered into dangerous waters just about, I can see the sharks circling out there. Um, I wanted to bring it back to the reason I that when I was conceptualizing this show, I wanted to have you on here, which is... Your debut novel, The Imaginary Corpse, coming out next month, we are airing this in August, uh, coming out next month from Angry Robot Books, and this is such a great story to me, uh, the, the meta story of how this book happened, because I remember that you were about to trunk this. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about how this book went from teetering on the edge of the trunk to being an actual real-life book that you can pre-order this very day and support the authors you love. God, I love hearing that. Yes, I can get into that. So, The Imaginary Corpse is... uh, This is not only my elevator pitch, this is Germaine. The Imaginary Corpse is a story that I have pitched as Raymond Chandler meets the Velveteen Rabbit for adults. It is a story of an ex-imaginary friend hunting the first serial killer of ideas... It gets weirder, and uh, that is germane because, uh, first of all, I want you to know that I wrote this weird, dorky book because it is the book of my life. (laughs) It was a book that I got the idea for it years ago, and I started writing down the outline, and I felt it. Like, as soon as I was writing it, it is one of those stories that I started writing, and I went, this is it. This is one of the ones, if not the one. You know, this this is... this is something that I'm that is actually coming from my heart and my soul onto the page in a way that not everything does. Mm-hmm. And so I got it written and I got it edited, you know, revised on my end, I should say. I had beta reader look at it, the whole nine, and I started sending it out for agent queries, and it it immediately struggled. Mm-hmm. I was getting mostly form, not for me, responses. And I, I got a couple of partials, but all the partials came back with essentially the same response, which is, this is great, you're writing it, and this is amazing, I love your ideas, and I have no idea where I'd sell this. <laughs> and they did not mean it as a criticism or a condemnation of the book, they were simply saying, you know, as your potential agent, as your business partner, I cannot in good faith take you on. Right. Because I literally have no idea where I would put this that would make us both money. Yeah, this is this is a weird idea, and I don't know what the market for it is right now. Exactly. So I started, uh, it was around 
it was midway through that process that I joined the writing community Hillary alluded to. And a couple of people there beta read it for me who loved it. Um, they told me they told me it was awesome, but they also told me basically the same thing, which was um one sorry, there were two schools of thought. One was this is amazing and the right agent will come along one day and love this as much as you obviously do and it will be great. Mm-hmm. And the other was this is awesome. And I just don't think a new author can sell this. Like, nobody was saying, this is unsellable. Nobody was saying, this will never see the light of day. But I got some very sincere advice from a member of our community that was, you know, I hate to say this, but I think you might want to think about putting this down, writing another idea you have that's maybe a little more accessible. Right. And then once you have that out, once you've had made a splash, had a success... Maybe then your agent can take this weird, dorky, like, stuffed dinosaur book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, did I mention the main characters of Triceratops? I don't think I did. You had not mentioned um, Okay, the main characters of Triceratops, now you know. Um, you know, this weird book, and then we can put it out on the market. And so, we're going to flashback so you can f- get the full dramatic irony. In the middle of that querying process, Angry Robot Books did their open-door submission call, which they do for, I think, like a month every year, they say... We have this window where we will take manuscripts that have no agent attached to them. Yeah. And I fired the imaginary corpse at them, thinking, what the hell? The, the worst that happens is I'm exactly where I am now. Right. Like, it doesn't even necessarily shut the door with Angry Robot, possibly when it's agented and agent can go back and go, hey, so I know you rejected this a year ago. But... <laughs> Listeners, that's unlikely, but I'm telling myself that as I, as I as past Tyler submits this, he's telling himself, "Well, maybe this won't sink me." So I do that and I forget about it, like I like I did everything else, you know. Like I kept note of it in a in my uh, I think at the time I was using Duotrope, no Query Tracker. Sorry, I made a note that I made the query to Angry Robot, and I just moved on with my life as though it was a no. Right. So fast forward. I get this feedback, I sit there and I think about it, and I realize this feedback is resonating with what I was already thinking, which is, this is a good book, it is not a first book. Mm-hmm. And so I made the call, I reached out to, you know, the my support network in our writing community and said, hey everyone, so I came to a really important, really difficult decision after this set of queries is done, because I had like five out at the time, mm-hmm. I am going to trunk this book if none of those gets me... Uh, if none of those gets me representation. Right. Um, you know, I've got another idea in the hopper. I'm excited to work on it, and it might be more marketable. And I got a lot of support. Everyone's like, that's really hard, but that totally makes sense. And hearing your idea, I think that that's a really smart move for you as a career writer, even though it sucks for you as an art writer mm-hmm. in the moment. And I made that call and was sitting there waiting for the last couple agent rejections to come in. Like, that was the attitude is, okay, I got four more rejections, and then I trunked this baby. And I got an email that was from uh, someone I didn't recognize, and it said, uh, offer on the imaginary course. (laughs) And I was told that Angry Robot absolutely loved this book, and they wanted it in their uh, lineup for 2019. And here's the offer, and we would, you know, be happy if you want to go get an agent and have them negotiate it for you. And so I'm one of those stories, uh, like another member of our community uh, that I'm aware of, at least one, who got an offer and then got an agent. And funny enough, the agent I went with, um, I'm with Lisa Abalera at Kimberly Cameron and Associates. When Lisa and I talked, mm-hmm. did the you know title case agent call, she told me she had thought the same thing. She had flagged the manuscript to come back to later because she'd read the beginning and gone, this is strong, 
but I don't know where I'd sell it. Mm-hmm. And so she was, she, it had struck her and she was going to come back to it, but she was kind of wavering in the same place of, I, I don't know what I'd do with this. And then she said, I came back to her, you know, with the email that was, hey, I know you've got my book right now. I have an offer on the table from Angry Robot. Do you want to talk? And she said she got that email and she went, oh, that's where I'd sell it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she said in hindsight, she was like, of course, that's where this weird book would go. It would go to the weird book people in Britain. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So Angry Robot is a wonderful publisher of wonderful weird books. Oh, absolutely. I... I've been reading a couple of of books by my uh, my angry robot siblings recently, and going, okay, yeah, I see why this appealed to them. Like, you know, given that my book appealed to them, I see why this I, this is their brand. Apparently, okay, awesome. Yeah, it's so. As, as somebody who has you know heard the stories occasionally, I, I remember yeah. on the Writing Excuses podcast at one point, Dan Wells talking about he went through roughly the same process of. Uh, getting his yeah. first book, I'm Not a Serial Killer, published, where yeah. he got it accepted by a publisher and then called up an agent and said, hey, by the way, I you know, I have an offer yeah. for this book. Could you represent me now? And it's so cool to hear that from somebody who I actually know. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it is a story, it is a story I've heard a couple of times, but it is definitely the exception. You know, it was certainly not something that I was banking on. Right. <laughs> like, I said that to Angry Robot, and I was not going, and then this will get me an agent, because that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Yeah. Um, Listeners, don't but be it discouraged. Out, it's just not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's... And at the same time as I say that, I know at least one other person who did the exact same thing with their debut book that they had agents who were interested and then an offer came down the pipe from an indie while they were talking to them. And that, that kind of may help them skip the line mm-hmm. as it were. Yeah. It can happen. It's not likely don't bank. Yeah. I mean, never bank on anything in publishing to be no. honest, but no, I think the biggest advice I would take from it is go ahead and diversify your methods within the acceptable methods. Of course, do not do the things you see agencies retweeting yeah. happening to them. Don't do but, all those painful uh, things that we yes. look at and in behind closed doors of tight-knit communities laugh at or yes. cringe at. Or in, some, yeah, or in some cases, just get retweeted onto the main feed of an agency's Twitter. Yeah. Like, I have seen ones egregious enough that they manage that and really don't do those. Don't. There there are a lot of ways to do it right. There are a lot of ways to do it wrong. Try not to do it wrong. Yeah. I think not only diversify your methods, um, don't let yourself be scared that trying to do it one way forbids you from doing it another way. Mm -hmm. Because that is something I know. I spoke to someone uh, a while back who was a little bit, just a little bit newer than me, like one rung down (laughs) from me. You know, in, in that they had also gotten their offer and were searching for an agent and they were under the impression that they had to reject the offer in order to get an oh, agent. Oh, no. Like, they asked me, uh, the, the question they actually asked me was, is it worth rejecting this offer so that I can go get an agent? And I responded, so no, it's not, but not for the reason you think I'm saying that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, which is... Like, agents actually love it when you come to them with, hey, I would like to be guaranteed money for both of us. Yes. Yeah. You know, I have 
I have I have a guaranteed commission for you, and also proof that your new client can sell a book. Yeah, just coming in the door, which in a in a business that is as much dart throwing as publishing can be, agents love that. Yeah, uh, listeners, in case you don't know how agenting works, an agent typically agrees to represent you with the idea that they can negotiate a offer on your book that will get you paid more even after they take a cut. Indeed. Um, and that is also how any reputable agent gets paid, listeners, just to be clear, yeah. is they take a cut of your advance. Money always flows towards the writer. Exactly. Also, I said this at a panel at FogCon, but I'm, I'll say it again here because it should be said far and wide. Industry average is 15% for the agent mm -hmm. and 85% for the author. If that ratio is any more skewed toward the agent... Walk away. Um, it, yeah. At the very least, look and go, what are they giving me that is so magically better than another agent can give me that they can ask me for 20 or whatever? Mm -hmm. I have never heard of a reputable agent doing that. I, I suppose it's vaguely possible that you could get someone so amazing that they go, I can take 20 because I'm a huge... I'm a big-time New York publisher. Right. But... <laughs> For the most part, they're going to go, I'm a big-time New York publisher, therefore I know how this freaking works, and I'm going to take 15%. Yeah. Listeners, if you are an author who is querying, who has heard from agents, who has been contacted unsolicited by agents, then uh, author beware is your friend. Yes. R uh, writer so beware. You mean uh, writer beware? Writer beware. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. Writer Beware uh, is sponsored by SIFWA, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and it is fan-freaking-tastic, and you don't need to be a SIFWA member to use yes. it. Yes. Hashtag SIFWA member. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag I'll be there eventually. Yes, you will. So, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about the Imaginary Corpse. Thank um, you. And one of the reasons when you first were pitching it in our community that I heard about it my yeah. my first thought was, oh my god, this is Jasper Ford coming back. Yes. And I have I, such uh, a soft spot for that particular brand of weird. As uh, you will be shocked to hear, I do what? too. <laughs> I know, right? Um, yeah, Ford... I considered comping to Ford during my pitches. Um, I was talked out of it by... I don't remember now who, so I don't want to scatter shot credit. Yeah. But uh, one of one of my writer friends was like, Ford's a little too old, you will sound out of touch. Ford's heyday is a little too old. Like, the stuff that people think of when they think yeah. Jasper Ford. The things that are is a little directly comparable. Like, the Nursery Crimes yeah. books, which are some of the books that are closest to my heart in terms of oh, just perfect yeah. weird... Yep, and I think, you know, I'm really glad that my for my morale that I didn't think of this before, but I think I read both the Nursery Crime books on Remainder from the bookstore that I worked at. Oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. Tough that, luck. I, I think, yep, just, you know, well, maybe he needed it to be 2019 and to be published by Angry Robot. Maybe that's, maybe that's the secret sauce that he didn't have on that. Yeah, there is a, a fascinating interview I've only read part of in this month, of a recording April's Locust magazine with Jasper Ford, where he talks about the fact that mm -hmm. he is basically driving in the dark with one dim headlight when he's writing. Oh, really? Ford's a pantser? He is a mega huh. pantser. And that's the reason that... we haven't seen the other two Shades of Grey books yet. Right. Right. Yeah, that's... 
I, I am not going to say that surprises me because that is super condescending toward Pantsers, which is a valid way to write. I'm a plotter, hardcore. Yeah. It surprises me just because I can't imagine trying to write something as weird as The Imaginary Corpse or Nursery Crimes or Thursday Next and having to do it with one dim head. Right. <laughs> that is some Herculean yeah. capacity to manage the plot in his head. Oh my god. Yeah. I, I read that and I was like... I am even more in awe. And that is in someone who... This podcast does not believe in the false dichotomy of pantsers versus plotters, but as somebody who used to consider himself a hardcore pantser, that is so impressive to me. Absolutely. I am in the same boat of I do not believe in the dichotomy between plotting and pantsing. I am in the middle of a heavily plotted book that I just had to pants the last... 10 pages of manuscript on Mm -hmm. because I got there and went, oh, I did not consider this, that, and the other thing. Well, guess I'll just switch off the headlights and let the force get here. But yeah, I I am also, I used to be a hardcore pantser. Fairyland, I actually pantsed. Mm -hmm. And it shows, I think, that actually a lot of my more problematic stuff came out of pantsing because I... I am not an organized brain. I have an anxiety disorder. (laughs) And um, it leads to me kind of jumping around my thoughts a lot. Mm -hmm. So when I pantsed, I think I had a habit of falling back on old saws a lot. And I think that that explains why a lot of my stories were Tyler Hayes, who would really love to be Neil Gaiman, Mm -hmm. (laughs) writing as Tyler Hayes. Yeah. Not not to say Neil is inherently problematic, no. but like it was definitely taking things that worked for Neil in the nineties and aughts and just cargo culting them endlessly in some of my old stories. Yes. Uh I I am there with you. The first story yeah. I tried to get published was one part I didn't really know what urban fantasy was yet, so I was writing a, you know, classic trench coated urban fantasy kind of Gary Stew. Yeah. One part Neil Gaiman sensibilities and I think I had probably like eight Terry Pratchett style footnotes in this 6,000 word story. Yep. And Oh, you're singing my song. Yep. <laughs> That's I, I actually literally had uh, I my first ever critique I paid for because I just was not breaking through and I, and I paid for a critique by a big name author who I will not name. <laughs> And they literally in their critique of my story said, okay, here's going to be my advice to you. Stop writing Neil Gaiman stories. Right. And start writing Tyler Hayes stories. And I was like, yeah, you know, you're right. I probably should. Yeah. I would love to say that that was when the breakthrough happened. But no, it took another three, four years before the breakthrough happened. Yeah. Probably my ego needed time to bounce back (laughs) from being read so hard. Oh, yeah. I had the both great fortune and great misfortune of getting traction with that first story by dint of family connections that um yep i don't think i've told this story on the podcast yet so i may as well tell it right here i sent it first to weird tales which at the time was edited by the late george sithers who had been editor of amazing stories in the 80s when my dad worked for amazing stories in the 80s with george I had grown up knowing George uh, being brought over to his house all the time when my dad was picking up editing gigs from him. Right. So when I submitted this story to Weird Tales, he called my house and talked to me for probably 20 minutes about the craft of fiction and how this was 
a damn good story, in his words. I still lean on that today. This was a damn good story, but it needed to be great. And I think he said, try again, and then I tried again, and he sent me back a very marked up copy, and I tried a third time, and then didn't get any traction with it, and there was upheaval, and he left Mm -hmm. Weird Tales, and... It's really a good thing that that story did not see the light of day. I know that feel. I, not that specific feel. That is a unique that feel. That is an extremely that I think unique only you feel. can really boast. Yeah. Yeah. But I definitely... My first story has dropped off the internet, and I am super glad. Because it is completely... like It is like Bizarro World, Tyler. <laughs> it is so completely not my current brand not my current interests Mm -hmm. like the main character is a serial killer oh man so yeah it has faded into the ether and good riddance i say i'm glad it got me the shot in the arm it did at a time that i needed it but i don't need it anymore right let me tell you what (sighs) so uh we're getting to the point in the show where we're gonna bust out the time machine and i'm Uh gonna ask you tyler if we could send you back in time to tell baby writer Tyler some piece of magical advice, some word of wisdom. What would you, what do you wish that you had known then that you know now? Honestly, I'm having trouble picking between two. So I'm going to go with my gut, which is that it is not only okay, it is great to have a happy ending. That was, I think, my biggest problem for years Mm -hmm. that a lot of my issues stemmed from was... I had this idea that adult stories ended, not necessarily tragically, but ended a little sadder than they started. Mm -hmm. That everything had to be a tragedy, not a comedy. And if I had known that years ago, it is possible that I would be in the position I am in now. That it's possible that I would have gotten there a decade ago. If I had had something to help me break through that creative constipation of, no, but it's got to be bleak because then it's for matures. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I just wish I could have gone and been like, it's okay to be happy. Not every writer has to be bitter. Right. Or not even necessarily happy, but hopeful. Hopeful is a better word. Um, I have embraced Alex Rowland's hope punk as a moniker. And, you know, it felt, I felt that in my bones when I heard it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I had gone, if I could have gone back in time and not just said, not only is it okay to write happy endings, we're going to have an, or hopeful endings rather, we're going to have a name for it mm-hmm. in 2019. It would have blown baby Tyler's mind. Yeah. Shouts to Hope Punk, shouts to Alex Rowland, shouts to Be the Serpent. If you're not listening to Be the Serpent, yes. listen to Be the Serpent. I think you mean the award-nominated yes, at, podcast, Be the Serpent. At the time of recording, Hugo Award shortlisted for Best Fan Cast, Be the Serpent. Tyler Hayes, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, can you tell us once again about your book, about anywhere else that we can find you, either in Meatspace or online or in your local bookseller? Absolutely. My book, The Imaginary Corpse, comes out on September 10th, 2019. You can pre-order it now as we are speaking at uh, your local independent bookseller or Barnes & Noble or Amazon, Kobo, Google Books, whatever is best for your needs. Please buy this book. Yes. Please please buy this book. Please buy this book twice if you can. 
you can also pick up, uh, if you want to benefit uh, both me and Hillary, you can pick up uh, Skies of Wonder, Skies of Danger, which is available on Amazon, Kobo, and I am double-checking my publications page. Barnes & Noble, um, Google Books, Apple Books. I think it's basically available anywhere you can buy fine ebooks and print-on-demand on Amazon. Uh, you can also, if you want my short fiction, um, all of which I promise is from after the epiphany, <laughs> it is available from, uh, also available from Alliteration Inc. in uh, No Shit There I Was, as previously mentioned, edited by Alex Axe. Fabulous, fabulous uh, anthology. Absolutely. Uh, has several members of our writing community in it, yep. actually. And also Not Our Kind, Tales of Not Belonging, uh, was edited by Nyad Monroe, and you can find me in there, too. And if you want to look me up, uh, Tyler hyphen hayes.com is my website because tyler hayes with no hyphen is camped by somebody who wants my monthly salary in exchange for the bastards yeah right and uh actually i will be out in the world for reels in um let me see as of september i'll be having a launch event i can't say what where yet because while i've got it finalized we haven't officially announced it um and you can come see me september 13th if you want to go up the mendocino coast at Gallery Bookshop on Friday the 13th, uh, uh, September 2019. I'll be doing a reading from The Imaginary Corpse, and I'll be... Fantastic. Your lucky day. Right? <laughs> they, they heard that they could get me for the Friday the 13th, and they went, well, we have to book him for yeah. that. <laughs> uh, listeners, yeah. you can also find Tyler on Twitter at the underscore real underscore Tyler, and on Instagram at Tyler Hayes Books. All of these will be linked in the show notes, so don't fret if you're listening to this and saying, wait, no, back up. Let me hear it again. Yeah, I've, I've made it complicated with my extra special characters. Once again, thank you so much. Listeners, stick around for next month's episode when we'll, we will be having another member of the Table of Contents from Skies of Wonder, Skies of Danger, and another debut novelist and friend, Amanda Hackwith will be coming on in September. Oh, that just made my heart bounce. Amanda's fantastic. Amanda is fantastic. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy hearing about the book that she's got coming out. It's all going to be amazing. Absolutely. Well, that's the show. See you next time, guys. Thanks, everyone. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. Patrons of the show get access to show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at TrunkCast, and I tweet at HBBisniacs. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. <laughs>